0: Thanks, guys, for leading us in worship and helping us this morning as we come just to celebrate our Savior and to celebrate our great faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, it's great when churches grow because people are trusting in Jesus and are giving their lives to him. It's wonderful to hear stories from other churches to see where that's happening, and it's so encouraging, isn't it? And sometimes we think it only happens in other countries or in other churches or it's something that only happened in the good old days. But as I was preparing for today... I look back over the uh, last few years at Regent and I I was going through, I I could just keep a record of when people become Christians, when they get baptized and that kind of stuff, things that we know when people have taken those kind of steps in their life. And I was going back to when I started taking records, which was 2008, and I found this that at least that I could count, only 28 people have publicly stated their faith in the Lord Jesus in that period. That's fantastic, isn't it? 28 people who have profess faith in Jesus. Absolutely. And that, that means that 28 people have turned away from their sins. They've been forgiven. They've got right with God. They've begun a relationship with him. They've received eternal life. And that is fantastic. That's amazing. Sometimes those, that, that kind of information just kind of washes over us. But that's the difference between someone going to a lost eternity and someone being with Jesus forever. That's amazing. That's fantastic. That is life-changing information. That's fantastic. That's so good to celebrate. I, I looked at people that, a number of people who have been baptized as well during that period, and I, I could count up at least 24 people that have been baptized. And, and there's been at least two people become Christians just in the last few weeks. That's fantastic. It's so encouraging, so exciting. It's what it's all about. That's what we're all about, isn't it? Lost people trusting in Jesus, giving their lives to him, getting their sins forgiven, receiving eternal life, publicly becoming followers of Jesus. Not all of them are still here. Some of them are moved away or in other churches. Not all of them are going on with their faith, but that's the number of people who publicly professed their faith in Jesus. However, when a church grows through people trusting in Jesus, or through any means, but particularly when it's through people trusting in Jesus, whilst it's fantastic, whilst that's amazing, it does bring some practical challenges and problems, or or potential problems. And that's what happened to the first church way back there in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. They grew from around about 100 people at the point when Jesus uh, ascended back up to heaven after he had risen from the dead, to by the time you get to Acts 6, you get probably about six or seven thousand people at that stage in, in, a, in a relatively short period of time. The church had grown exponentially, massive growth. 28 people is fantastic, but you know, it's 100 to six or seven thousand—that would be amazing, wouldn't it? That would be fantastic. But that caused some unforeseen problems. And it brought some challenges for the church and for their leaders. And we're going to see how uh, those leaders tackled that problem in a a very practical way as they were guided by God. We're picking again up uh, our studies in 1 Timothy, a letter that Paul the Apostle, who was one of the main leaders of the the, uh, church in the first century, uh, we're reading his letter that he wrote, or his first letter that he wrote to Timothy, one of his kind of right-hand men. And we're working our way through Timothy, and we're picking that back up again today in 1 Timothy 3. But to give a bit of a background to that passage, we're going to go back to the early chapters of Acts. So we're going to read firstly from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. So if you've got a Bible with you and you want to turn, that's great. If not, you can just listen as I read it. That's fine. Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 to 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And as I said, we're about, when it talks about the numbers of disciples, number of Christians growing, we're probably about six or 7,000 people. That's what it's referring to. So in, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Luke says this, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews, by which he means Jews that spoke Greek as their language, complained against the Hebraic Jews, by which he means Jews that spoke Hebrew as their language, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, in other words, Bible teaching, in order to wait on tables, in other words, serving those who needed food. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the church and its leaders, despite having been banned from preaching about Jesus by the authorities, they were, they were so active, not just the leaders but the whole church, they were so active in spreading this good news about Jesus, that he'd come from heaven, that he died on the cross, that, they, that people could have a relationship with him, that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that had been promised to Israel, God's chosen king. They were so active in, in presenting and spreading this message that the church just kept on growing and growing and growing. What a fantastic problem to have. However, there was a problem, there was a, there was a kind of drawback to all this or, a, or an unintended consequence. If you look at verse 1, and the verse will be up on the screen for you, it says this, in those days that when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, at this stage, all these new Christians, or pretty much all of them anyway, pretty much almost certainly all of them, were ethnically Jewish. And because they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, God's... Uh, chosen and his special king many of them were cut off from their families and friends perhaps but by who were jews who didn't like them becoming christians and so as often happens in the world today when people from other faiths perhaps or from no faith trust in jesus their families were shunning them and they found themselves cut off and they had practical needs many of them had no money and many of them therefore had no food and back in Acts 2, we read how the, the Christians, in that, in that first, uh, when the church first started, they sold their possessions to make sure that nobody who was poor went without food. They were kind of a common coming together to make sure those in need were provided for. But now, as the church grew, we're not talking about 100, we're not talking about 2,000 in Acts 2. We're now talking six or 7,000. We've got some real problems. These Christians were all ethnically Jewish, but some of them spoke Greek because of the historical reasons, and some of them spoke Hebrew. And as the church tried to provide for the practical needs uh, of these Christians who had no money, specifically here it seems to be widows who had no husbands to provide for them, and culturally in that situation they would have no money, and therefore it would mean they would starve to death. The Greek-speaking Jewish Christians were being overlooked and were being discriminated against in favor of the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians. And so the 12 leaders of that first church in Jerusalem tried to tackle the problem and make sure that those who had practical needs in their church were cared for and provided for. They had a group of widows that had nobody to provide for them, and so it was essential that the rest of the church did what it practically could to make sure that they had money and that they had food. Remember, there was no welfare state in those days, no tax credits, no universal credit, no benefits anything like that. So if the church didn't provide for these people, they would literally starve. It really was that serious. There was no welfare, there was no uh, kind of safety net. If the church didn't step in, these people would starve to death. And this gives us the first example of the early church appointing people to ensure that the practical needs of church members were met. It's the first example that we get of this, where the church realises We've got some people who don't just have spiritual needs, but they have practical needs, and we need to make sure that those practical needs are met and are cared for. And what we learn from this, as we look at how, as a church today, we can build ourselves upon that New Testament example, is that as a church, we are meant to, today still, to provide for the practical needs of those in our church family. If you've got an outline, you want to write that on your outline. We need to provide for the practical needs of those in our church family. You know, within a local church... There shouldn't be anybody who has to go without. There shouldn't be anybody who can't provide food for their family. There shouldn't be anybody who can't heat their home. If a person has a need, then collectively we need to come together and make sure that those needs are met. If we are able to, we need to do whatever we can to make sure that our family members, our brothers and our sisters, that's what a church family is, to make sure that our brothers and our sisters have their practical needs. Not all their wants, we might all want lots of things, but our actual needs, you know, shelter, food, clothing, warmth, those kind of things, those, those practical needs to make sure that they are met if one person has a need, well, we've got to try and come together to try and make sure that those needs are met. And it might not just be financial needs, particularly perhaps today with a welfare state that's less likely to be an issue in our culture. But we might have people who might have financial needs or they may not, but they may be someone who's too frail or too elderly to, to do housework or to cut their grass. Real practical needs. It might be somebody who's in hospital and needs visiting and is on their own. I spent Eight, nine days in hospital about five years ago, and, and being on your own in hospital for nine days is, is, really, is, is a long time. Some people are in hospital for a long, long time, and it's a real mi- ministry of mercy to go and visit people who are in hospital if you can do that. It might be somebody who needs help with their shopping, is, is shut in and can't get out and can't do that. It might be a single parent who needs help with their children real practical needs in our culture in our situation it could be all sorts of practical needs and as a church we've got a responsibility to try and care for each other and for our family there is of course a kind of side thing of this is that we need to know what those needs are and that implies and requires us to build friendships with each other if i don't know you then i'm not going to know what your needs are and if you don't tell me i'm not going to know what your needs are And so we need to invest in friendships with each other, to have each other in our homes, to spend time with each other, build friendships, build relationships. We're not meant to just come in here and see each other on a Sunday and then not see each other for the rest of the week. We need to be investing in home groups and investing in our relationships with each other so that when we become aware of needs, then we can help. And we won't become aware of those needs if we're not spending time together. We need to to be a family and a practical outworking of that. And so much of that takes place in our home groups here at Regent, and it's a way in which we can provide for those practical needs as people have them. Maybe financial, probably not in our culture today, but nevertheless, needs that are just as necessary and just as real for those who have them. So the 12 apostles, the, the, the 12 disciples of Jesus, who were the leaders of that first church, they were the elders of the church in Jerusalem at that stage, they got together and they reviewed this situation. There were 12 of them, but there were probably around six or 7,000 people now in the church. So there was no way that the 12 of them could lead and preach and teach and help people become followers of Jesus, as well as ensuring that the daily distribution of food to those who had no food went ahead. There just no way they could do both of those jobs. So verse 2 says this, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, in other words, teaching from the Bible, in order to wait on tables by which they mean uh, providing food for those in need. If the church was going to grow, then they had to establish some systems and some structures where they could make sure that the church looked after the practical needs of the members whilst at the same time enabling the elders to stay focused on their task, which was to make sure the church stayed focused on reaching out to lost people so that lost people could hear the gospel and come to faith in Jesus. And then when those people became Christians, ensuring that they were taught and equipped and trained and supported. And that's very much the role of church elders. The practical needs of church members were really, really important, but they couldn't be allowed to prevent the church from telling people about Jesus and telling people how to follow him. So the apostles, who at this stage were the elders of the church in Jerusalem, they were clear that their role was to focus on teaching and preaching and praying. That was their role that they had to focus on. And it was vital that as the spiritual leaders of that church that they focused on preaching and teaching from the word of God, the Bible, and on praying for the church, praying for lost people to be saved. So they realized they couldn't do all that. So they needed to get another group of people to focus on ensuring that those practical needs were met. So they got the church together, probably a a group of key people. And in verse 3 we read this, Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom we will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So the church was to choose seven men who were godly men, full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they were men who were living their lives, fully surrendered to God, living lives that were pleasing to God. Men who had great wisdom. because they would need lots of wisdom if they were to be deciding who got financial help and who didn't, it was important that they chose the right people because they were going to have a great responsibility. They needed to be wise people. And then as the elders of the church, uh, that they would hand over the responsibility to these men for providing for the practical, and, 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 uh, practical needs of the people in that church. And they handed it over to these seven men. And this would mean that then, as elders of that church, they could focus on prayer and on teaching and preaching from the Word of God. And then in verse 5, we read this. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Ty- Timon, Pomenaeus. Uh, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So they found seven godly, wise men, and then they publicly recognized them in this special role in some way or other by laying on hands on them and praying for them and kind of acknowledging them in this role. And these men's job was to ensure that the, the practical needs of the church in Jerusalem were looked after. In in particular, in this specific case, the distribution of food to widows. And they weren't meant to do it all themselves. Their job was to ensure that it happened, and that it happened fairly, and that People weren't discriminated based on their ethnicity or anything like that. And this pattern of church structure with elders uh, leading and teaching and guiding and being an oversight and so on, and then a group of deacons to serve and particularly uh, deal with the practical needs and welfare of the church, that became the norm as the church expanded. And over the, ne- over the next few years, the gospel was spread right across Europe and beyond, and many, many churches were established. So we'd have a... a A structure where elders would lead the church and direct the affairs of the church, as as Timothy says in 1 Timothy 5, as well as teaching and praying and preaching and providing for the church and providing shepherd-like care. And there might be one or more of that team of elders who would be supported financially, as as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, so that they could have the kind of role that I have here. And then there would be a group of what became known as deacons, and the word deacon simply means servant. And it's someone who serves the church by making sure that wherever possible the practical needs have been met by the church. The practical needs of those in the church are being met. So to sum that up, elders provide shepherd-like care, Bible teaching, prayer, spiritual protection, oversight, direction for the church, and deacons are those who coordinate the practical care and welfare of those in our church and those in contact with our church who are in need. That's the model that we find in the New Testament, and it's the model that we've followed here at Regent and I said earlier it's great to have so many people who over these last few years and and in the years past too who have professed faith in the Lord Jesus but as our church grows and, and God willing will continue to grow we need to continue to reach out and spread the good news about Jesus we need to make sure that nothing prevents us or ties us up from keeping on reaching out and telling people that God loves them, that Jesus died for them, that there's a way in which they can have a relationship with God and have eternal life and be made right with God. That, that message is so important that we stay focused and we continually free the church up to keep doing that. So we need to ensure that those who have practical needs in the church, that their needs are met, but that, that those practical needs don't uh, take us away from staying focused on reaching out to the lost The role of deacons is is partly to ensure that the practical needs of people in this church are met. But it's also to make sure that as elders, we're freed up to focus on what we're called to do and on the, the biblical model for what elders are to do. So here's a challenge for you to think about this morning, just to think in your own mind and in your own heart. What can I do to support the elders and ensure that they stay focused on their task? What can you do to support us, Keith, Paul, myself, to make sure we stay focused on the task of the the elder's role? What can you do to make sure that we're not distracted by other things, all of which might be really important and legitimate and good things, but are not really the role of elders, things that might pull us away from trying to lead and govern the church well? What, what, what What can you do to free us up so that we can try to ensure that the church stays focused on the good news about Jesus being spread and put out? How can you help us to ensure that people are being taught well, from the Bible? What can you do to free us up so that we're able to help new Christians become real devoted followers of Jesus? Most of my time as a full-time elder is spent meeting with non-Christians to study the Bible, meeting with new Christians to disciple them and teach them what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and then in providing about 50% of the Sunday teaching. That's probably about 70 or 80% of my role. And anything that frees me up to focus on doing that, often during the day when other people can't make it, it's fantastic and it really helps, it's really appreciated and helps me stay focused on the role that I've been appointed to do. And it may be this morning that God is speaking to you and he's speaking about, to you about serving in some practical way in this church. And it could be in all sorts of different ways. Ways in which that help the, the elders to stay focused on their role rather than doing stuff not that it's not that we don't want to do other things but that we use our time wisely as the elders here in Jerusalem realize that they needed to do. So if God is speaking to you about that, if perhaps God is putting something on your heart, then pray about that. Come and talk to us as elders. Speak to Paul or Keith or myself, and we would be delighted to to involve you in whatever that might be if God is putting that on your heart. But as well as the deacons being appointed to help the elders of the church stay focused on what they're called by God to do, deacons are also appointed to ensure that those who have practical needs in the local church have their needs provided for and met. But just as in Jerusalem, it's not practical or realistic just for one group, whether that's the elders or the deacons, to to, to meet all the the needs of the local church. The the deacons in Acts 6 were chiefly appointed to lead and direct the practical care of the church in Jerusalem. It was their responsibility to make sure that it happened and that it happened fairly, which was a really key thing. But they couldn't do it all on their own, even seven. There's no way these seven were going to help 7,000 people. And the same is true here in this church. We might not have six or 7,000 people. Paul and Rita are really glad that they haven't got six or 7,000 people to deal with. But nevertheless, it's not realistic for the two deacons that we currently have, Paul and Rita, to meet all of the practical needs in our church. So their role is very much a coordinating and leading and organizing that practical care. But they still need lots of other people to actually deliver that. Uh, and to carry that out. They can't be in more than one place at one time. So another challenge to think through this morning is this. What, what can I do to help the deacons provide for the practical needs of those in our church family? What can we do to help the deacons provide for the practical needs of those in our church family? They can't do it all on their own. They have families, grandchildren, grandchildren. Uh, And they have other roles in the church as well, as well as being deacons. So how can we all help them ensure that those who have practical needs in our church are helped and are served? Now, we're not living in first century Israel. Widows in those days without money would literally starve to death. That's not the situation. Despite what we might think of our welfare system, it is phenomenal. It is fantastic. And if you don't believe that, just travel to some developing countries. We have an amazing, amazing welfare system, whatever you may think of it. And because of our welfare system, it's it's unlikely that the major needs of people today in in our church or in our culture will be financial. There might be times when people need financial help, that's true. But in our context, in 21st century Britain, it's more likely to be other practical needs that people have. They might be linked to limited finances, that's true, if they're on benefits and and, and on very limited uh, incomes. But it's probably more practical things rather than the finances. That might be things like helping with lifts to hospital. Maybe you can help by doing the shopping for someone who is shut in. Maybe you can help by cutting the grass for somebody. Maybe you can help visiting somebody who is uh, hospital bound or, or in a care home or, or take them out for a coffee or to the shops. Maybe you can help visit someone who's in hospital. Maybe you could provide a meal for someone who's just come out of hospital or as we try and do for those who have just had babies to make sure that you know, for 10 days, 2 weeks, there's meals provided for that family There are all sorts of things like this that are kind of our cultural equivalents of this need in the first century. It's probably not going to be financed for us, primarily, although there might be times when that happens. But it's practical things like this, practical needs that different people will have at different times in their lives. And we should try and do all we can. We're not going to be able to meet every need, but if we know of needs, then we need to try and step up and try and make sure that we can meet those practical needs. And the elders may not know of those needs. Paul and Rita may not know. So if you are aware of someone who has a practical need, or you have a practical need yourself, then make that known. Come and see Paul and Rita, or come and see us, or tell your home group leaders. So as a family, as a church family together, we can do what we can to care for those who have practical needs. If there's anything that you can do, or you feel, you know what, I could do that. I'm working full-time, but I could do that. I I could do this. I couldn't do it all the time, but I could give some, some time to this or whatever it might be. Then let Paul and Rita know, if, if there are things that you could do to help, then let them know. I'm sure they would be delighted. They've got a list of people who are happy to do various things. I'm sure they would be delighted to add to that. Uh, it would be really, really helpful. As well as keeping an eye out for people's financial needs, which they may have, these are the kind of practical needs that our deacons try to help with and meet. So if there's anything you can do, or or maybe you're just willing to be asked as and when there is, when there's a need that arises, then can I encourage you to go and see one of them today and, and make known your willingness to help. Of course, we don't have to do it formally. If, if I see one of you or you see me in, in need, we don't need to make a big deal about it. We can just get alongside each other, can't we? And we don't need to make it an official thing and just help one another. And if we see a need that each other have, we can just do that. And there's so much of that that takes place in this church. Behind the scenes, people just getting on and serving and helping each other in, not, in non-spectacular ways, just caring for each other. Uh, when I first moved up, uh, 12 years or so ago, and I was staying in different people's houses, and uh, Jean, who's out the back, so I won't embarrass her, she's not here. Jean came and says, "Give me all your washing," and she took all my washing off. Anybody who's happy to do my washing is got to be clearly a saint. So you know, it's that kind of thing: practical needs, helping people who have real needs, uh, and, and, and that's where loving one another kind of really hits the road, doesn't it? Just helping one another with real practical needs. And the focus of Acts 6 is is specifically the establishing the role of deacons in the local church. But the passage that we're actually looking at today, which is just a preamble, is uh, 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. Don't worry, I'm not going to add for my second point of 9. When we look at this passage in 1 Timothy 3, we get... a a fuller, more developed list of qualifications for those who are deacons. So we're just going to read from 1 Timothy 3. A few weeks ago, I spoke on the the qualifications for elders, and Paul is continuing, so he's given a whole list of qualifications for elders, and then he says, and likewise, so he's continuing in this vein, and saying what the qualifications should be for deacons. So it's verses 8 to 13. Paul says this, Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith. In Christ Jesus. So Paul had gone through the qualifications for an elder and we looked at that a few weeks ago and now he turns to the qualifications for a deacon. Deacons he says need to be people that are respected by the rest of their church. They need to be people who are known to be sincere. In other words what they say is what they mean. They're trustworthy, they're reliable, they don't say one thing to one and one thing to somebody else. They need to be able to control themselves around alcohol and be free from accusations of lacking self-control. Paul says they need to be known for their honesty, and, and that's especially true if they're going to be handling church money, which will be sometimes the case, helping those in financial need. It's important that they're known and trusted when it comes to finances. They, know they need to be known to be not in it for themselves, that, the, that their concern is for other people and not their own financial gain. There need to be people, Paul says, who are deeply committed to the Bible and to the truths that are found in it, especially the gospel. the the deep mysteries of the faith, Paul says, and and to living by it. They need to be really committed to this. And and as he focuses on the wives of deacons or on female deacons, he stresses that they must maintain confidentiality, that they mustn't be malicious in the way that they talk about other people. And you can imagine, as deacons perhaps knowing, uh, a little bit like elders, knowing so much sometimes about people's personal situations, it's really important that they can be trusted and that people uh, are not living in fear of what they've shared, the confidential matters being uh, spread around the church, and so on. Male deacons, Paul says, are to be exemplary in their married life. They're known to be those who are faithful in their marriage. Paul says the husband of but one wife, in other words, faithful to their wives. And they should be known as those who have or are bringing up their children in a godly and a biblical way and are managing their families in a godly and biblical way. The role of deacons is such a huge uh, A hugely important one, and it's one that requires people who are godly and full of the Holy Spirit. It's one that requires people who meet these really stringent uh, requirements, because it is such an important role. And because they need to be like this, it's important, Paul says, that they're tested first. It's important that we, we see that they meet these biblical requirements and qualifications before being appointed. The role of deacons is such an important one. And that's why Paul finishes this passage with these words, those who have served get well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. It's not why deacons do what they do, or, or it shouldn't be, but those who do what they do well, those who serve well, says Paul, should be honored, they should be appreciated, they should receive the recognition that they deserve. And it's easy, isn't it, to overlook the work of deacons, and sometimes we kind of think of the elders and uh, you know, yeah, their role is the kind of key role, but actually, the deacon role is a really significant role in church, and, and it should be recognised and appreciated. Helping and serving those in need in a church family is such an important role, and it's the essence of what it means, really, to, to put our love for one another into practice, isn't it? And as they serve well, says Paul, this verse says that the deacon's faith in Christ will grow and be strengthened, which in itself is a great reward. For them, the, the deacon's role is specifically to serve those in need in the local church, but actually, we're all called to serve one another. And as I've already said, you know, we, we mustn't stand back. The elders have specific tasks, but that doesn't mean that the rest of us can't get involved and help in some of those tasks. The deacons have specific tasks, but we can all, can't we, get involved and serve each other wherever we see those needs? We don't have to make a big thing of it. It is it, often behind the scenes where other people don't see. Galatians 5.13 tells us, serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another humbly in love. That's about looking for the needs that you have and saying, what can I do to help you? And then doing it. That's what serving really means. When we see others in our church family with needs, whatever they might be, let's try to help meet those needs. We won't perhaps be able to meet every need that every person has, but let's not do it for the want of try. Let's try and make sure that as much as possible we try and meet those practical needs. One of the reasons, as we've already seen, for having deacons in a church is to enable the elders to be freed up to focus on their God-given role. And part of their role is to keep the church focused on the task of reaching out to the people around us with the good news that God loves them, that Jesus died for them, that they can have a relationship with God. And then to teaching them and equipping them and training them as they become Christians and baptizing them and, and, and discipling them and, and so on. And we see that for the church in Jerusalem, this worked. As they'd grown, they needed some structures to put in place. They needed to be able to function better and more smoothly. And it enabled the 12 apostles, the, 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 who were the elders of that church at that point, to carry out their role and to lead the church well so that more people would keep coming to know Jesus and would become f- uh, followers of Jesus. And we see this outcome in verse 7. Uh, Luke says, So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient." to the faith it's fantastic because they put these structures in place it freed up the elders to stay focused on what they were doing because the because the apostles were freed up to preach and teach the word of god spread and if they hadn't done that the, the apostles would have been distracted with providing practical welfare and important though that was and is it couldn't and it mustn't be allowed to prevent the word of god spreading and the good news about jesus being preached and new christians being discipled and taught and trained So write this down. Our primary focus as a church must always be on spreading the good news and making disciples. Our primary focus as a church must always be on spreading the good news and making disciples. We mustn't allow the needs of those in our church to be ignored. It would be terrible, wouldn't it, if people had real practical needs. And if you're sitting here this morning and you have a real practical need then please don't keep quiet about that. Come and tell Paul or or Rita or or, or speak to your home leader or or to one of the elders because we want to be a family that cares for one another and loves one another. But we also need to ensure that we stay focused on that all-important task of reaching out, of spreading that good news about Jesus to others and making disciples, making radical, committed followers of the Lord Jesus. And that's why we have deacons, to make sure that those who are in need of help whilst freeing up the elders to stay focused on their tasks. So what can you do to help in all of this? What can you do? You might not be an elder or a deacon, but what can you do to help in this process? How can you help the deacons? Paul and Rita have and continue to do a great job serving this church as deacons, and and John and Rachel and Peter and Heidi before them, but they need help. we, We could really do with one or two or three more deacons in this church. And it may be that as you've listened today, God has been speaking to you and calling you to serve in that capacity here at Regent. And if that's the case, then please speak to Paul or or Keith or myself. Uh, It would be great if we could chat that through with you, if we could increase our capacity. I'm sure Paul and Rita will be very happy uh, to have some uh, extra help with that and take some of the pressure off Paul and Rita. It may be that you don't feel called to do that. And and, and that's fine because we all have different gifts and different ways of serving. But there are ways in which you could help support their role as deacons. That might be by visiting those who are housebound or in hospital. It might be providing meals to those who are unwell. It might be giving lifts to people who uh, are without transport. It could be any of these things and, and a whole variety of other things that I've not even thought about. So let's just take a few moments now as we come towards the end of our service just to perhaps bow our heads and and, and pause and reflect on what God might be saying to us this morning and if God is calling you to step out in some way and serve him here in this church then can I encourage you to do that and it might just be that you it's not something that anyone else knows about you just get on and you do it behind the scenes or it might be a question of speaking to Paul and Rita or coming and seeing the elders whatever that might look like if God is speaking to you this morning, if he's putting that on your heart, then please make that known, uh, respond to what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. So let's just bow our heads and just spend a few moments in, in, in quiet reflection. Father, we pray that you'd help us as a church to be a, a church that loves one another, and that those who have real practical needs, uh, and indeed spiritual needs, have those needs met as much as we're able to. Father, would you help us to be a, a church that loves one another and serves one another humbly with love. We pray that you'd help us to do that and to see those needs and to invest in relationships with one another, that we might love one another practically as we serve one another humbly in love. We pray this in Jesus' name going to ask Paul and Rita to come back up the front. I'm going to ask Paul Malice, uh, who, uh, Paul didn't know I've asked this, but anyway. Um, like, Paul, Paul's going to come up the front as well. And, and we're just going to pray for Paul and Rita and just kind of afresh uh, and affirm them in the role that they play and have in this church. This really important role. So uh, I'm just going to pray and then I'll ask Paul to pray um, and then uh, Daniel and the band will just come and lead us in a final time of worship. We're just going to pray for you guys and Thank you for what you do and just affirm you and say thank you for all that you do. We just want to pray for you this morning. Is that okay? Great. Father, we just thank you for Paul and Rita. Thank you for their many years of Christian service in lots of different ways, from camps many years ago right down today to serving in this church as deacons. Father, would you bless them? Would you encourage them Uh, when they're tired, when they're weary? Would you give them strength and energy? Uh, Would you give them wisdom? Would you give them discretion? Would Would you fill them with your spirit? and anoint them and empower them for your service. We give you thanks for them, in Jesus' name, amen.